Well, if you would remain standing and take your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we are looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the publican and we'll focus on verse 14, but I will read verse 9 through 14 and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious almighty God, we bow before you seeking, Lord, your hand of favor and illumination, Lord, that you might open our eyes to see, Lord, that you would even illuminate our hearts that we might be able to make sound judgments of ourselves as we look to your word, as we compare ourselves with the Pharisee and the publican. Lord, that you would give us a holy and righteous discernment of where we are and where we stand, who we compare with the most. Now, Father, do take this word this morning and apply it to our hearts and our minds. Help us to understand it, to perceive it, and make use of it. And Lord, let that truth permeate into our will and every facet of our lives, Lord, that we might live out its implications, its truths. Now, Father, come and Lord, bless your name in us who hear this word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 9. And he, being Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I paid tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This parable addresses that fundamental question that most people come to ask, and that is how does a sinner, how is a sinner made right before a holy God? It's fundamental, it's essential, it's paramount to any blessing and any favor and any salvation. That that's the first question that the unbeliever must begin to ponder and ask in himself. 
here Jesus uses the teaching tool of, well, contrast and comparison. The Pharisee and the publican represent the human race. And we have to decide which one we identify with. That is, as we listen to this teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're supposed to identify with one or the other. We're supposed to listen to the parable. We're supposed to begin to judge ourselves, our motivations, our intentions with that of the Pharisee and the publican. How we see ourselves and how we see others is paramount to whether or not we truly possess everlasting life. These things are vitally important. I'm not going to rehash the whole doctrine of justification. We spent four, at least four sermons addressing what it is to be justified and its importance. If you continue to have those questions, you can certainly refer back to those sermons. This morning, we, I want to turn your attention to verse 14 and its latter half. We've already addressed what Jesus says about the publican, and of course it would have astounded his listeners, those being brought up in that Judaism, that cult, if you will, of works righteousness, where they valued the external over the internal, and I didn't say it was wrong to value the external, But remember and catch what I said. They valued the external over the internal. That's important to make a note of that. It was, again, Jesus telling them that the one who had realized their own deficiencies, their, their, their true spiritual poverty. They had the one both being Jews. The publican was a Jew. The Pharisee was a Jew. They both go up to worship. One believes they have something to offer God and God ought to be thankful for it. And the other says, I have nothing to offer you, O God. I am a sinner. I am the sinner. I am bankrupt spiritually. And it's Jesus' commendation of the publican. He says, that one went to his house justified, accepted before God. The latter half of the verse begins after the semicolon, if you're looking at the New American Standard Version like I am preaching from, it says, for... And now he begins a different thought. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And of course, we ought to understand this maxim in light of the use of it in, with the parable. But first I want to address what this statement is and its importance. First, I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is applying what we understand to be a moral maxim. A moral maxim. 
Now, what is a moral maxim? Well, a moral maxim is simply something that is universally true with everyone, such as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a moral maxim. In this moral maxim, Jesus is saying, he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that's simple, it's straightforward, and of course, it's attached to this particular parable, but it's one that Jesus used multiple times in his teaching. Jesus used this before in order to highlight the importance of humility and the ugly sinfulness of pride and arrogance. Now, we see this, this universal moral maxim. Now, we find this stated in different ways throughout all of Scripture. I'm going to give you several Scripture references, and then I'm going to, I'm going to give you three people where that moral maxim was displayed. In Psalm 18, verse 27, the psalmist writes, he says, For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. Well, what is the psalmist saying? Simply what Jesus is teaching here. We read from Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Proverbs 18, verse 12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty and before honor is humility. James chapter four, verse six, the epistle of James says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. First Peter 5, 5, and referring to young men in the church, he says, likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, but be clothed with humility for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And again, in these verses, it is identifying this moral maxim. We ought to be Humble. We ought to be humble, certainly in the reality of the fall. Now, I'll say a little bit more about that later. But the reality is that men are typically, ordinarily, not humble, that they are full of pride. They lack discernment. They're full of arrogance. They don't see themselves the way, well, God sees them. And that is the essence of humility. Being able to identify and recognize that this is how God sees me. And is that not what we see in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican? The Pharisee completely it delusional. The text tells us he makes his grand standing before God and before the people. And what does he do? He brags about his goodness. 
But the Pharisee, I mean, but the publican doesn't do that. In fact, the teaching Jesus, Jesus is pointing out, he's using these small little terms. He says, no, the, the, the publican stands in a distance. Well, he senses his unworthiness to come before God. That's important. He knows he's unworthy to come before a holy God. He knows he possesses nothing. He has nothing. There is nothing he can do at that moment but plead the mercy of God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is universal in the sense that Since the fall, man has a moral obligation to humble himself before God and to recognize his own spiritual poverty and need for God to intervene and change his stony heart and give him grace and mercy, apart from which he will never, ever possess or experience. Take your Bibles if you want to. Uh, turn to Genesis 4. Let's just go to the beginning. Go to the beginning. In, in Genesis 4, the first person that came to my mind in studying this text, I thought about Cain. Why Cain? Well, what was Cain's issue? Well, Cain's issue was that he refused to be teachable. He refused to humble himself under the countenance of God, under the counsel of God. He refused to do what he was called upon to do. And remember what I taught about humility several weeks back. What is one of the components of true humility? Teachableness. Teachableness. Well, let's look at verse 4. Or let's look at verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain... And for his offering, he had no regard, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. All right, look up. Notice Cain and Abel go and worship. What's the publican and the Pharisee doing? They worship. Who did Jesus identify as accepting his worship? The publican. Because the publican had humbled himself. Now, that's not what justified him. But it was an evidence of the justification, of the regeneration, of the work of God in the heart. And yet we have something very similar. In the very beginning of human history, we have Cain and Abel. They both go up and worship God. And God had, had favor with Abel's offering with his worship, and he rejected Cain's worship. First John, the epistle tells us that there was 
His, he, he wasn't right in his heart before God. He did not have faith in God. His heart was still polluted and corrupted by his own sin. He had never repented of his sin. He had never identified himself as the sinner like the publican. And God rejected his worship. And it says in verse 6 that Cain was angry. Who is Cain angry with? God. And it talks about his countenance falling. In verse 7, God says to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And of course, verse 8 tells us what the outcome of Cain's hatred for God and hatred for Abel. And he, he murdered his brother. Now, brothers and sisters, we could go and read the rest of the text. And what was the result of, of Cain's murder? He was exiled. He was banished. He was, he was banished to be a wanderer and away from God's presence and God's people. We see in this a moral maxim. He who exalts himself, that is the person exalting himself, will be future humbled, that is something acting upon him to humble him. Because Cain would not humble himself, God humbled him. God brought him to a very low condition. We'll see that in just a moment. So you see the, you can see from the very beginning this moral principle at work. There's another biblical character, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar exhibits great pride in the works of his hands. And for that reason, God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, all intents and purposes at this point, is not a believer. And yet, my point in showing you Nebuchadnezzar and his humility, his arrogance and his being humbled and him being humbled is to show you this is a universal moral maxim. This applies universally. It's not just an American moral truth. This is a universal moral precept that covers all people everywhere at all time. Meaning God hates arrogance. He hates the prideful and he will humble them. He will deal with them. And he does so with Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking on his roof in verse 29, verse 30. The king reflected and said, 
This is not Babylon, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now let's stop. Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king, an idolater, a demigod, views himself as sovereign and God had reached a point where it was time where God felt it was time to humble him and he did again that universal moral maxim that God hates arrogance and God gives grace to the humble holds true now Nebuchadnezzar, after this period of time, comes out of this. And look at verse 34. It says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is his everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That sounds like a confession of faith, doesn't it? Sounds like humility. It sounds like somebody that's been humbled. It sounds like somebody that's been taught a hard lesson. But let's read the rest of the text. And at this time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Does this sound like the exaltation of the humble? Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You know, brothers and sisters, I was very um, in consideration of simply making some comments and passing on to the next verse in this text. And then it just began, the Lord just began sort of flooding my mind and, I, and heart with how subtle pride and arrogance can be and how often we are guilty of it. And that it is certainly becoming of us to take another Sunday and other study times to, to, 
to have this emphasized to us from the Holy Scripture so that we might gain the mind of God on this matter, so that we might certainly walk out of here this morning recognizing, yes, God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. God forbid I be proud. God forbid I would stand fast in my arrogance this morning that I would cling to something that I've done as being, as being worthy of favor before God, that I would cling to my goodness, my good works, that I would cling to my good deeds and actions to my friends and neighbors and somehow think that that is going to be acceptable over the righteousness of Christ and his work. That's arrogance that somehow what we do is far superior and better than the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Think about it. Well, there was a third person. I'll just mention him. I think you will, I think you get the point. But I have to mention him, sort of to round out the history, if you will, up until this point, and that is Peter. See, Peter suffered also. Well, as did really all of the disciples. You remember they constantly argued over who was greatest in the kingdom. Even to the point where the two of them, you know, John and they got their mother to come and ask Jesus, hey, will my sons be sitting on your right and left in the kingdom? I mean, that's bold. And of course, they had to be judging themselves, well, with their works to the others, right? We do more than you do. We're smarter than you. We're, I mean, we, when we preach, we preach with more fervor than you preach with. I mean, we, we've saved more people than you've saved. Certainly, we should be sitting on the right and the left of our Lord. And Peter being one of those, Jesus told Peter straight to his face. He said, Peter, you don't understand something. Satan has come to me and he has asked to sift you as wheat. Silence, pause. Peter doesn't even say. Peter is so blinded by his own strength. He can't even say, well, Lord, certainly I hope you said no. No, that's not what Peter did. Peter blinded by his by, by the, the his own perception of his strength said I will never forsake you Never Lord no sir not me I will never ever forsake you and Lord the Lord Jesus says Peter you, before the cock crows 3 times you're going to deny me 3 times He still didn't get it he got it when he did it. And the Lord humbled him. And when Peter humbled himself, the Lord exalted him. Well, let's go back to our maxim here. Let's look at its parts. 
Now, the text itself, I mean, when you look at this moral maxim, it really, it divides easily into two parts. That's easily understood. You have the first part that says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's part one. And then part two, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what does it mean to exalt oneself? Well, the word simply means to raise up or to make high. We see that in the parable. Jesus demonstrates the definition of this self-exaltation in the Pharisee. In look in verse 11, he says, Then the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. He stood up. He's drawing attention to himself. He's becoming modest at that point. I want everyone to look at me and hear me. So the word simply means to raise Now, it's important to understand that the subject doing the raising is the one that's going to be humbled. The Pharisee raised himself up before the brethren. He exalted himself. God did not exalt him. He exalted himself. He wanted people to see him as righteous. Now we know this, right? I mean, we know this. We, we know that this is the point from verse nine. We got to keep this in mind. We don't deviate. We don't wander off to the right or to the left. Verse nine is sort of the anchor point that keeps us focused on where the parable needs to go. Where he says they were to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's the issue. That's what Jesus is addressing. That's his target. This exaltation, this the one who exalts himself becomes the focus of God's humbling him. Let me go over, I guess, some of the components. Well, we can see the components of exaltation from the parable itself, right? There's this desire, uh, what do you call it, um, sort of a craving for attention. That doesn't sound foreign in our day and time, does it? There's all kinds of craving for attention in our day and time. And again, a symbol of arrogance. Look at me. Let me be the, the poster child of happiness or the poster child of, of luxurious living or the poster child of everything always going right and no problems whatsoever. Or the poster child of woe is me. Victimhood. He stands up and then notice how fake his prayer is. Notice, so, notice he, he begins addressing God, but then the prayer turns in nothing more than a, 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 a braggart session of him telling God how good he is. And attaching to that 
to all of these things that he believes he's qualified to be righteous in God's sight, he attaches to that. And, and by the way, Lord, I am not like this guy. And that couldn't be further from the, I mean, that, that, that couldn't be more true, right? He was not like that guy. And Jesus says that the publican went to his house justified, meaning God had received his worship and rejected the Pharisees' worship. He's absolutely right. The problem is the Pharisee goes home and he believes he's in favor with God. The Pharisee goes home and he actually believes that somehow he, he, his presence before God added something to God that day. And this mentality is alive and well in the church. Just be glad I showed up on Sunday. Just be glad that I did a, a couple of things here and there. And there are multitudes of people that fall into this camp of the Pharisee who will hold out, who will argue tooth and nail that somehow their goodness is good enough. Not understanding the depth and the glory of God's holiness. Not understanding the depth and depravity and the poverty of their own spiritual condition. They're confused about God's glory and they're confused about themselves. And we'll see that in the next teaching in Luke 18 with the rich young ruler. He makes the same mistake. It's beautiful how Luke adds these up in this chapter. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean for God to humble those who exalt themselves? Well, we, we read Cain. You know, we read that text that addressed Cain. We read the text where Nebuchadnezzar, we read even, or didn't read, but just sort of uh, highlighted what happened to Peter. So what is the exaltation here, or what is the humbling here in verse 14 as it, as it relates to the person that exalts himself? Rejection. That's the point of the parable. God rejects them. God rejects their offering of self-righteousness. God's not obligated to receive their worship. God's not obligated to receive their kind of worship. God's not obligated to receive that righteousness that they bring to that worship and offer up to God as somehow worthy of being seen by everyone and emulated by everyone. No, God rejects it. He denies it. He doesn't even consider it. And he doesn't honor it. So much, so much for the idea that we can just offer and throw anything to God and he will just accept it because we offer it. Here, it means that God rejected him. He didn't justify him. Now, ultimately, The day of judgment is another humbling. 
You see, if the Pharisee never comes to his senses, if the Pharisee never comes to his self-awareness, which is what humility does, true humility brings a self-awareness. It brings this self-discernment. It begins to see oneself for who they really are. Like, I'm bankrupt. I mean, yeah, even the good things I do, I do with mixed emotions and feelings and righteousness. The best things I have to offer are, well, tainted with sin. If the Pharisee never comes to that place, beloved, on that day of judgment, Matthew 25, he will be ultimately and eternally humbled forever. Forever. What about the second part? Let's few minutes to affirm so many things we've already said, right? But the opposite is so when he says, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, the publican humbled himself. That's the point Jesus is using this moral maxim to enforce in the parable itself. Remember, the parable is fictitious. There's no name given to the Pharisee. It's not Bob and Jim going up to the temple. It's fictitious, though probably very realistic in that day and time, but still fictitious. What does it mean to be, to humble oneself? Well, to, to, to make low. I'm not all that. You say, well, it's, you know, people that depend on their beauty, people that depend on their height, people that de- depend on their genetics. Well, first of all, who gave that to you? God. What about your intellect? Maybe you are head and shoulders above your peers. Good for you. Well, did you craft your own brain? Did you download some software to make you smarter than the, well, your peer group? No, you didn't. God gave that to you. You know, all of this clamoring in the world today, I want, I, you go home, you recognize of how much fuss is given over things that no one can do anything about. It's what you're born with. And it's been politicized and weaponized. Think about it. You know, I'd tell my girls, and of course, I'm a father of girls. I thought they were pretty. And I would tell them they were pretty. But I would always also say, but you cannot take ultimate credit for it. God made you that way. And to God be the glory. Same way with intellect. Now, even with both, you can work on those things, right? You can improve those. I mean, there's things you can do. You can educate yourself. You can inform yourself. I mean, there's, but nevertheless, beloved, we come to this awareness. He who makes himself low. Look, this is the reality. God has gifted me. He's done these things. I, I bring nothing but sin to everything. 
Even the intellect God gave me, I bring sin there. I use it for sinful purposes. Oh yes, I'm head and shoulders above my peers, but I, I, well, I can tear all my peer groups apart because I'm smarter than they are. I exalt myself. I, I tear others down to even make myself look even larger than I am. I can't say, I listen, I can't say enough about the viciousness of many females when it comes to looks and how they attack one another. It's real. And the judgments. We need, brothers and sisters, to understand anything we have that's worthy of acknowledgement comes from God. And all that's even good, we've polluted with our own sin and selfishness and self-righteousness. And as the text says, don't forget, contempt. What is contempt? An open hatred for others that are not like you. What does it say about this person that has the self-awareness? What does it say to the person that has this discernment and, and, and the, even the, what you might say, the, the, the modesty to go, listen, I'm not all that. I'm not. Anything you see in me that is worthy of praise, I promise you came from God, not me. What does God do? Lifts them up. In the text of the parable, what does that mean? He accepts their worship. He receives them. He favors them by accepting their worship. He shows them favor. How so? He favored the publicans' worship over the Pharisees' worship. Now, brothers and sisters, the ultimate question and the question of application and something that you need to wrestle with, and I even need to wrestle with it, is this idea is, how does God receive me? How does God favor me? How shall I know that God has favored me? Will I go to worship this morning? Will I humble myself? Will I be humble? Will I live a humble life? How can you know that God has received your worship this morning? Are you humble? Are you teachable? Are you aware of yourself? Are you self-aware? Are you discerning about the things that are going on inside of you and what Scripture says about it? Will you agree with God? What was Nebuchadnezzar? Notice Cain didn't agree with God because God told Cain, he said, Cain, don't you realize that if you do well, your countenance will be lifted? He didn't receive it. He didn't receive that counsel. He rejected that counsel. He was not teachable. Nebuchadnezzar was not teachable. He took credit for it all and God humbled him. Peter wasn't teachable either. 
I do need to address this because I don't want you to leave here thinking this. Sort of the might be an obvious connection. The obvious connection comes from verse 14 where Jesus even says, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, is that verse saying that because the uh, publican went into the house of the Lord and well, beat his chest and cried tears and stood off at a distance that that provoked God to favor him? Is that what it's saying? Well, that's what it says. But it can't be what it means. Why? Well, because it would violate the whole context of the parable itself and why Jesus taught it. Notice again, verse 9, but there were some people who trusted in themselves. You can't have this trust in yourselves and then, well, be condemned for trusting in yourself. That's not what Jesus is saying. But brothers and sisters, I want you to think of this. God made us and gave us a constitution that is responsive to the things of God. God deals with us in the way he created us, that we would think about these things, that we would feel these things, that we would carry these things with us. They would be burdens to us. And his humility is nothing more than the outworking of what had already come to his mental state that he was a sinner. Somehow he had come into the preaching in the connection of the preaching of the gospel. He had heard someone preach. He needed to repent of his sins and put his faith in Jesus Christ. He goes up to the temple to demonstrate, I am a sinner. I am at war at odds with God. Have mercy on me. That humility was nothing more than a right response and a reflection of all that he had heard and what he had thought about it when he come to that self-awareness. I am a sinner. This preaching does apply to me. I am going to hell. I must turn from my sin. I need to put my faith in someone whose righteousness God accepts. I can't trust in myself. I must abandon myself, I must leave myself, and I must accept what God has provided for me to be in favor with him, which is reception of Jesus Christ and his work, his righteousness. So the humility, beloved, is important. Justification has an outflowing and a presence, if you will, The inward work of God has a reality in the human constitution and condition, meaning we think about these things and they have an effect upon us, right? We're not robots. We're not robots. And God made us to be moved, to be impassioned, to even be excitable. And the, the, the publican exhibits all of those things when he comes to the awareness and the mental, when the mental perception that I am at odds with God. God didn't bypass his mind. And God didn't bypass his heart. And the moral maxim stands God looks for humility and God truly exalts the humble.
You want God to receive your worship? You want God to favor you, beloved? Be humble. Be humble. Search out the best you can. Take the word of God. Search your mind, your hearts. When, when arrogance comes up in any circumstance, kill it. Kill it. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I close with this verse from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Now, Father, we have at least completed this parable, knowing that more could be said, but yet enough has been said. Now, Father, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Give us the fertile ground of our hearts and our souls to receive this teaching and bear fruit and more fruit. And, Father, we shall, by grace, through the work of the Spirit, give you all glory. Now, Father, we realize we have nothing to offer nothing and it is only in Christ alone he he is our substance and it is he that we put our faith in and it's he that you've accepted Lord you've accepted him his work and his righteousness as acceptable so father I pray if there anyone here this morning that maybe for the first time has come to an understanding of this. Lord, work in their hearts, salvation. Lord, and may one of the first exhibits of that be humility. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.